The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 5, The Rise of Labor and the Myth of the Robber Baron. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, welcome back. So before we get started, as always, thank you for listening. Please visit the website, www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can sign up for our email updates there. If you're into social media, you can follow me on Twitter, at AmericanHisCast. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can do so by joining our Patreon. The link is on the first page of the website, down at the bottom. I appreciate everyone who's joined. It really does help cover the cost of books and the website and hosting. So thank you very much. You can also email me questions or comments or concerns. The email is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. Now, as always, we start off with the song of the week. This week, our song is by Woody Guthrie. The song is titled Blow the Man Down, and I'll see you on the other side. As I was out walking down Paradise Street To me way, blow the man down A pretty young damsel I chanced for to meet Give me some time to blow the man down She was round in the counter and bluffing the bow Way, blow the man down So I took in all sail and cried way enough now Give me some time to blow the man down I hailed her in English, she answered me clear To me, way, blow the man down I'm from the Black Arrow down to the Shakespeare Give me some time to blow the man down So I tailed her my flipper and took her in tow To me, way, blow the man down All right, so in the last episode we spoke about the railroads and I mentioned the Second American Industrial Revolution. Now if you didn't know it, there were really two phases or two periods of industrialization in American history. The first one was just prior to the Civil War and focused on things like textiles, iron, coal, and railroads. The second period, or the second Industrial Revolution, which took place after the Civil War, it focused more on railroads, oil, steel, and electricity. So it's during this second phase that technological advances, large-scale production methods, um, even the opening of new markets truly encouraged the rise of what some term industrial capitalism in the United States. The 19th century was a time of rapid economic growth, and this latter half was really characterized by the development of large-scale production, as well as some incredible changes in technology and the creation of international communications networks. Now, you might not be aware of it, but the first undersea cables, um, communication cables, were laid in the 1850s. These were used for telegraph communications, and eventually they were upgraded to carry telephone and data traffic. Now, as the 19th century progressed, industrialization and mechanization became more and more prevalent. The Civil War created, as all wars do, huge fortunes for those who profit from such destructive conflicts, and this new class of millionaires was now quite eager to invest in industry. Some of the growth was fueled by natural resources, 
For example, the Misabi range deposits that are found in the Minnesota Lake Superior region, they yielded huge tracts of iron ore for the steel industry. So this increase in the supply of raw ore meant it was cheaper to make steel. Thus, the price of steel was lowered, or at least it was lower than what it might have been had that supply not increased. You also had skilled and unskilled labor, which was seeking a drop in price. And what I mean by this is that thanks to the fact that the population was growing, the amount of people looking for a job increased. Thanks to the natural birth rate, but also large numbers of immigrants coming in from Europe, the pool of labor was abundant. So that puts downward pressure on the price of labor, or shall I say on wages. These two things fed the growing industrial economy. Now, another important aspect to all of this was the creation of new technology. Now, I know we tend to see our day and age as a time of great technical advancement, and it is, but so was the late 19th century. Patents increased significantly between the years 1860 and 1890, for example. Um, Eli Whitney's system of interchangeable parts was perfected by industry at this time. So things like the cash register, the stock ticker, the typewriter, all of these things facilitated business operations. Now, just a quick side note, the typewriter, which is no longer being manufactured anywhere in the world, um, it is, of course, still in use, but new ones are no longer being made. I just thought that was kind of weird when I heard that a few years ago, considering that I learned how to type on a typewriter. Okay, so anyways, um, giving away my age there, uh, women increasingly entered the workplace to help run these machines. And finally, urbanization was spurred by the refrigerator car, the creation of the electric dynamo, and the electric streetcar. Now, speaking of inventions, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone in 1876. Actually, I should say he was given a patent for the telephone, but the creation of the device is a bit more complicated than that. Um, but be that as it may, within a few years, the first nationwide telephone network was created. Now, young women, who are usually from the middle class, they worked as telephone operators. And this was because these office positions were culturally seen as being within the, quote, cult of domesticity parameters for unmarried women. So a woman could hold these jobs without being seen as compromising her role or her status as a woman. Now, at the same time, we have Thomas Edison, a.k.a. the Wizard of Menlo Park. He created several devices, including the incandescent light bulb, the phonograph, the mimeograph, a dictaphone, and moving pictures. Electricity, now at this time, became a cornerstone of the Industrial Revolution. Um, the Edison Electric Company eventually set the standard for electricity with direct current before Westinghouse modernized the industry with the use of alternating current. Almost overnight, you had cities becoming illuminated and electric streetcars becoming standard use, all of this revolutionizing urban, urban living. Now, eventually, Edison sold his company, and it became known as General Electric. Now, I want to discuss vertical integration, horizontal integration, and interlocking directorates, all of which were part of what is known as, or what was known as trusts back in the 19th century. Um, so first, let's talk about vertical integration. This is where a business controls every aspect of the production process, and it was pioneered by Andrew Carnegie. His Carnegie Steel mined ore in the Misabi Range, the land uh, was leased from J.D. Rockefeller, and then shipped to the Great Lakes, and from there, to steel factories in Pennsylvania or Pittsburgh. The goal was to improve efficiency by making supplies more reliable, controlling the quality of the product at all stages of production, 
and to eliminate the fees that were charged by the middleman. Now, this vertical integration is seen as not being detrimental to competition um, or as detrimental to competition as horizontal integration. John D. Rockefeller eventually utilized vertical integration to strengthen his industrial power by bypassing the railroad industry. Now, horizontal integration was another business practice of the late 19th century. This is where a business buys out the competition to try and monopolize its hold on the market. So imagine a situation in which Apple buys out Samsung and Google, or at least their smartphone divisions. Apple would have eliminated some of its biggest competition by doing that. This tactic was pioneered by John D. Rockefeller in 1882 as a means of controlling the competition to the Standard Oil Company. And this horizontal integration is what is sometimes called a trust. Stockholders in various small oil companies sold their stock to the board of directors of Standard Oil. The stockholders received trust certificates, and the board of trustees exercised full control of the newly acquired business. Now, trusts ended up consolidating the operations of previously competing enterprises. So eventually, Standard Oil, they were successful in cornering the world petroleum market. When Rockefeller finally retired in 1897, the company was worth all about $900 million, and this was before the birth of the auto industry. So let's just back up a moment. By 1877, Rockefeller controlled 95% of oil refineries in the United States. This was basically a virtual monopoly. His policy was to rule or ruin. He was, needless to say, ruthless in his business tactics. He believed that he was obeying the laws of nature, the survival of the fittest, so to speak. Now, while we might condemn Rockefeller for his practices, the reality is that his company did produce a quality product for a price that was fairly cheap. This meant he ended up, ended up fueling important economies at home and abroad. In the end, thanks to large-scale methods of production and distribution, he was able to do this. Um, because he controlled the market, he could sell at a price that was cheap enough to please consumers, but high enough to turn a nice profit, much more so than would have been possible had he been engaged in ruinous price wars. Now, another method of business was the use of interlocking directorates. This was created by J.P. Morgan. The Depression of 1890 drove many struggling businesses or businessmen into the arms of Morgan. He sought to consolidate these rival enterprises and ensure future harmony by placing officers of his own banking syndicate on the board of directors of these companies. Thus, he essentially controlled them, even if this control was unofficial. In the 20th century, holding companies came to thwart antitrust legislation. Um, they bought controlling shares of stock in member companies instead of purchasing the company outright. Now, while they, the held companies remained separate businesses on paper, the holding company actually controlled them. Now, these, these holding companies made trusts unnecessary, and they permitted actual mergers to take place. In the end, this time period saw the nation's final power grow, and that power enhanced economic growth, paving the way for large-scale mass production and stimulating new markets both at home and abroad. Now, if we are talking about the late 19th century and industrialization, then it's appropriate that we talk about the steel industry. This was, to a great extent, the cornerstone of the second American Industrial Revolution. Steel was so important. It held together skyscrapers, bridges, coal scuttles, and even railroad tracks. It typified heavy industry, which, con which concentrated on making capital goods instead of consumer goods. By 1900, the United States was producing as much steel as Britain and Germany combined. 
Now, at the center of this important industry was a man named Andrew Carnegie. He was the first to utilize the Bessemer process. This was a process developed in Europe in the 1850s on a small scale. It turned into um, iron into steel by blowing oxygen through the molten material before it hardened. And thanks to this, steel could be easily produced for locomotives and steel rails could be used in railroads, as well as the heavy girders needed for building uh, construction. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, something that I've always found interesting about Carnegie is that, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, he hated monopolistic trusts. His organization was actually a partnership involving about 40 different steel tycoons at one point. And by 1890, his organization produced about a quarter of the nation's Bessemer steel. Eventually, he sold his company to J.P. Morgan for over $400 million and spent the rest of his life giving his money away to the public um, through libraries, creating pensions for professors, etc. All in all, he ended up giving away about 350 of the $400 million. Now, speaking of Morgan, he owned a Wall Street banking house, which financed the reorganization of railroads, insurance companies, and banks. He had a reputation for integrity, and he did not believe um, money power was dangerous unless it's in the wrong hands. Now, in 1901, he launched the enlarged United States Steel Corporation. This was the nation's first billion-dollar corporation, worth more than the entire country had been worth in 1800. These newly wealthy folks were referred to as the nouveau riche and were, some would say, a super-arrogant new leisure class that emerged in the Second Industrial Revolution. They wielded unprecedented wealth. By 1890, it's estimated that companies owned about 40% of the value of all property in the United States. And it was the supposed conspicuous consumption and the flaunting of wealth that made these people the targets of critics who ended up coining the term robber baron. Now, speaking of critics, the older American aristocracy um, of successful merchants and professionals, they were highly resentful and concerned about the new changes in the order of society. Patrician families, like the Roosevelt's, were losing power and prestige to the new rich. Some folks, some of whom were part of the old money, argued that new money threatened economic liberty and community involvement thanks to their monopolies and political machines. Thus, they became antitrust crusaders. However, I would um, caution you on this. First, where were the complaints from the old money when the political machines were controlling elections before, say, 1870? There were no complaints from them at that point. The problem is the new rich threatened the old money's hold on power. Thus, the old money fought back using propaganda as well as the power of government. And despite the supposed emerging plutocracy and deep class divisions, these captains of industry provided material progress. The average person was living a far better life in 1900 than in 1800. The standard of living had increased in the 19th century, especially in the latter half. Most, if not all, goods were cheaper than they had been thanks to the increases in productivity and the Industrial Revolution. Millions of people were employed in these industries and could now afford things they once couldn't even dream of. Okay, so now it's time to discuss the term 
robber baron and the men um, to whom that label has been attached, or at least some of the men, as it would be impossible to discuss them all in one episode. I will say that the term robber baron has been, for the most part, discarded by academic historians who study the late 19th century, but as so often happens, the general public hasn't gotten the message. Now, before you shut this off and accuse me of just being some right-wing ideologue, I will say that this isn't just something that a few right-of-center historians, and yes, there are a few of them, uh, if not a lot, uh, have made up. Just one example is Richard White, a historian at Stanford University. In his 2011 work, Railroaded, The Transcontinentals and the Making of Modern America, he dismisses the term, and no one would accuse Richard White of being a card-carrying member of the, quote, vast right-wing conspiracy, end quote, to use a phrase coined by Hillary Clinton. As I've been arguing, the average man benefited from the Industrial Revolution. Now, was it perfect? Of course not. But lifespans were increasing, the standard of living was increasing, and even the average person was starting to have leisure time. Thus, you had the formation of, in the United States, of the National League and American League in professional baseball. In England, you had the formation of the Football Association. People had time and money to spend, for perhaps the first time in human history, on entertainments like pro sports. Okay, so let's talk now about social Darwinism. This was an idea promoted by Herbert Spencer in England. He applied Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection to human competition. The natural law of survival of the fittest seemed to justify the inequities in human society that existed between rich and the poor. If one was poor, it was their fault because of what was seen as their laziness, their lack of virtue, or their lack of talent. On the other hand, millionaires were the product of natural selection or so said William Bram Sumner in his book, What Social Classes Owe to Each Other. Now, some took it further and argued that God chose the winners and losers in society. For example, John D. Rockefeller said, quote, the good Lord gave me my money, end quote. In some ways, this attitude resembled the old divine right of kings in the way that it justified the power of the new money. Those who remained poor did so because they were lazy and they just lacked an enterprise. However, let me criticize this for a moment. First, and this holds true today, these statements ignore reality. The rich and the poor are not monolithic, unchanging groups. Certainly, there are those individuals and families that experience generational poverty. But, and this is important, remember that many of the new rich came from modest beginnings. For example, Carnegie and Rockefeller both came from modest backgrounds. Um, Heck, the Rockefeller's dad was a con artist known as Devil Bill. Um, Second, there were business leaders who argued that the wealthy were morally obligated to help those who were less fortunate, and thus improve society. Now, this was uh, the gospel of wealth, and those who followed it made philanthropic contributions that enhanced educational opportunities and urban environments throughout the nation. A great example was the aforementioned Andrew Carnegie. He justified the fact that wealth uh, was unevenly distributed and enjoyed by industrialists. He ended up synthesizing the prevailing attitudes of wealth and the idea of the survival of the fittest. He believed wealth was God's will, and he believed the wealthy added to civilization. He believed that the alternative to so-called inequality of wealth was universal poverty. Further, he felt one's wealth should be donated to the public good to help create libraries, universities, hospitals, concert halls, and parks. And Carnegie practiced what he preached. He criticized the nouveau riche who flaunted their wealth and did not partake in philanthropy for the common good of the community. Many wealthy people, of course, believed that he was a traitor to his class. Yet, John D. Rockefeller followed Carnegie's advice. He gave away over $500 million to various causes 
by the time he died at the ripe old age of 97. Carnegie, however, was not for simply giving cash handouts to individuals who were struggling, as he believed this stifled initiative. So we're almost done. Um, let's just talk about the rise of government regulation. I might have mentioned it before, but originally what was meant by government regulation of commerce was the idea that, gener that the general government should help to make it regular, i.e. help commerce flow. However, thanks to the public demanding government curb the excess of pow uh, power of trusts, Congress passed the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890. It forbade combinations in restraint of trade without distinguishing between a good trust and a bad trust. Now, at first, it was largely ineffective as it had no significant enforcement mechanism. The first seven of eight decisions were shot down by the Supreme Court. Thus, more trusts formed in the 1890s under President McKinley than during any other period. In fact, it was not until the Hepburn Act of 1906 and the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914 that the Sherman Act was given teeth, so to speak. Now, ironically, companies used the Sherman Act to curb labor unions and labor combinations that were deemed to be acting in restraint of trade. However, in the end, one could say that by 1915, public interests were challenging private enterprise in political power thanks to the Interstate Commerce Act of 1877 and the Sherman Antitrust Act. The public was, at least a portion of it, shifting to supporting the idea that government could protect, uh, protect it via regulation. However, I'm going to burst this bubble, at least I'm going to try to. Um, how does one protect the public? Who is the public? The public is, after all, made up of individuals all of whom have different interests. Sometimes one is a member of Group A, but other times you're a member of Group B. Who is protected by these acts? Consumers? I would suggest that the ones who were, and often are, protected by politicians are simply the ones with the money. Just some food for thought. Okay, so let's look at the impact of the Second Industrial Revolution. First, the standard of living rose sharply and remained the highest in the world. Second, urban centers mushroomed as factories increased, uh, increasingly demanded more labor. Third, U.S. agriculture was eclipsed by industrialism, railroads, steel, oil, electricity. Fourth, the workplace was, as some would argue, regimented and impersonal. Fifth, women started to gain social and economic independence in new careers such as typing, stenography, and switchboard operating. In some instances, marriages were delayed and smaller families resulted. Sixth, some historians argue that social stratification was the most pronounced in U.S. history, arguing that 90% of the nation's wealth was owed, owned by 10%. These historians argue this led to lower classes being envious and resentful of the nouveau riche. Now again, I'm not so sure about this. Um, I have a feeling that, for the most part, the lower classes were busy trying to improve their lot in life and feed their children to truly worry about someone far away and what he was doing. Finally, foreign trade developed as high um, U.S. productivity meant that American goods were fairly inexpensive. Okay, so that's it for today. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please give us a five-star rating over on iTunes and leave a review if you have time to do so. Until then, I'll see you next time. Have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.